So let's go ahead and start. We're going to talk about anthropology. Um, and of course, anthropology has to. Or is anybody listening, or are y'all just all on about the candy around here? <laughs> well, bring me some candy and then I can all, okay? Let's go. Here, I want some candy too. Oh, man, what's in there? Okay, stickers. Where are the stickers? Our neighborhood. Sarah. Sarah? Okay, can I have your. Can, can, we, uh, can we pull it all to order? <laughs> Aren't we all rowdy today? And now we're going to feed each other chocolate and we're going to be really rowdy. So talk to me about this first question. What do you think? Why don't we start with you? What do you think? Middle table. Well, here's our spokesman here. Go for it, brother. All right. Well... I think that what Chesterton is getting at is that if you reduce everything to rationalism and reasoning, it um, makes what we can't know or, you know, still, you know, I, uh, aspects of faith are that much more um, illuminated as like that you just end up like a dog chasing your tail, just going after the stuff that you can't know, and that's what he, what he's getting at is like the modern man has gone mad. Hmm. Hmm. I love that idea, though, that it's not the man who's lost his reason; it's it's the man who's lost everything but his reason. Obviously, making room for what faith, revelation, mm-hmm. revelation is as opposed to re- reason. And that's going to lead us to our second question. But let's see what else. You want to have anything to add to that? Number one? Over there? We talked about um, how when you analyze things in in terms of the rational uh, aspects, Mm -hmm. that you reduce everything to bits and pieces. And then you have a pile of bits and pieces and not the whole. Good. So we can only know ourselves in atomistic bits and pieces kind of a way. We can't know ourselves holistically. That's good. That's right, because if you think about, and it gets back to this Cartesian thing, I heard you mention that in your thing, that, you know, we've, we've now put our, we are no bigger than the little box of our mind can conceive of us and see us, which can only see us in parts, because we ourselves are looking at ourselves, you know, and thinking about ourselves, so uh, we call that a tautology, but yeah, anything to add over there? Did we get it all, or did you come up with some other new idea? In what way? Do what? The meaninglessness. The meaninglessness. Okay, good. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's a, we we know our we you know. Let me read a quote that's on your handout, so you don't have to look at it now. You'll be going to it if you if you got it. But um, but it really does. This first quote at the very end, he says, "quote." <clears throat> No age knows so much and so many things about humanness as does ours. And yet no age knows less than ours what humanness is. That's really cool. Having lost the awareness of God, modern people have set their sights on human existence as the one worthy object of concern. It is, however, precisely because of this loss 
of God awareness that present day people are less sure of who they are and why. For it is only in reference to God that nature of humanness can truly be understood. Um, that really brings us to our second question. How then is the above situation corrected according to John Calvin? What are the implications in our self-knowledge? I love this quote. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. First of all, what is, does anybody recognize immediately what's the biblical concept behind this quote? When we think of who we are, what is humanity in the scripture? It's the image of God, the imago Dei. So, so that certainly derives from that. But think about what that means. You know, what would, what would, what would we learn from, what, would, what is Calvin suggesting here? What's true humanness? Communion with God. Communion with God. It begins to get to the purpose of our humanness, to image God, to mirror God, to replicate God on earth as he is in heaven. But it's also to think about the fact that whatever else humanness is, it's a much more grand and more glorious thing uh, than what we would know of ourselves apart from our reflection of God. So if you think about it, you know, we are but animal part of creation, but now we realize that we have, there's something eternal about us. Immortal. Have you ever thought of that? But we are immortal. You know, in the image of God. And that just changes everything about how we conceive of ourselves and the dignity of that. Which then brings us, again, and I've already read that other quote, uh, to number three. Can it be said that the doctrine of sin dignifies humanity? If so, in what sense? In the sense that we were not created or intended to be sinful, but we were intended to be in the image of God as, mm. as Adam was in the garden. Good. So think about it. I mean, it, it's, yeah, well, I'm not going to jump in yet. What do you guys think about that question? That we were created for the capacity to do righteousness. Mm. So how does sin dignify us? Mm. With What would we lose if we lost the doctrine of sin that is dignifying? Will rather than roboticness. Okay, good. You're, you're on it. You're getting close there, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm not saying... Actual sinning dignifies us. I'm saying the category, the concept, the doctrine of sin is a dignifying doctrine. Y'all want to give a shot? The existence of sin mandates that we seek a savior. Okay, that's true. That, that we need a savior, Therefore, and where we will find that dignity. Push us to work for God. Yep, that's absolutely true. Is it that? category of sin and the introduction of sin says that the problems of, with the world are not inherent to who we are, good, who we are good. but instead creation is good it is made you know, we are glorious and beautiful right. and therefore sin 
because it is is it's a flaw. It, it's it's a pollutant. In other words, if think about it, if you if you were to look at, at you know the compare, if you were to look at a, a, a pond that's polluted, and we and we would say that's what a pond is. You would have a, a very ignoble, very unglorious perception and definition of ponds are stinky places, <laughs> you'd be saying. Stagnant water, stinky places. But then you go up to the mountains and you see a, a running, clear, crystal, alive, fresh, cool stream. And you say, that's water versus the pond water. Right? Or let's say even a, a virgin pond. Let's keep the categories the same. And you go to this virgin pond in the middle of the woods somewhere. And you go, well, that's a pond. Now what's your conception of a pond? You know, when you swim in it, you can see your feet all the way down and all that kind of stuff. It's glorious. It's beautiful. So you see, if you, if you don't have the category of sin to debunk the pollutant that's in the pollutant, polluted pond, you now have a very different conception of pond. But if you have the category that says, and, and of course the world in all of its ugliness, its sin, and it's all of this mess, sin actually dignifies humanity insofar as it says that's not real humanness. That's humanless fallen. That's humanless gone astray. And therefore, the whole scheme of redemption, now that you're getting back to the Savior, is to restore us to humanness. Now, this is something, I mean, this, this, was, this is something so profound. A lot of people, um, I, I, well, gosh, I don't even know how to give it justice. But when you read John Calvin's Institutes, if you ever get a chance to do it, you're going to be surprised at how much of a humanist John Calvin is. And that he is constantly relating salvation to the restoration of humanity. Not just sort of saving us, but it's, it's restoring us. It's making us back to where we're to be. It's recreating us, if you will. And so, so this is a huge category in anthropology. Huge. This idea of thinking about our salvation as restoring humanity to the glorious image that it was meant to be. Of course, that's exactly the language of Romans 1. Where having kind of echo God, you know, suppressed him, rejected him, he delivers us over to sin. And what does it say? Is that we become, our image becomes, you know, soiled and diminished to that of a creature. Rather than to the image of a glorious, immortal God. So humanness is infinitely more precious with the category of sin than it would be without it. Um, you mentioned another aspect of that more in a... Uh, the, the other thing is that the category of sin, what else does it do? Back to your mechanistic, or what you said, what mechanical thing. What do you mean by that? That we are beings with wills, consciences, the ability to act. Yeah, yeah it's, it's dignifying in that we are not deterministic, sensory, you know, stimulus response, mechanistic. We have 
the capacity to overrule our sensory. We have the capacity to, to overrule our impulses. We're not sensory reactive people. We are more than that. And the biggest thing is we have choice. We really have choice. We're not uh, deterministic. That's huge. Um, you know, I, I won't go into it, but being a dog trainer, I, I, I just noticed how important stimulus response is and how raising teenagers, it ceases to, when the, as they grow in their humanness, stimulus response gets over, it, it's amazing how they begin to override it. You know, in other words, I can't impose behavior on my kids. There's something deeper that has to happen as they grow older. Now, as they're young, you can. It's a little more, not perfectly, of course. That, that will is there before it's ever, ever happened, you know. But, but, but as they're young, as they get older, though, more, they become more and more human as they grow and, and, and develop in the sense that, not, not ontologically more human, but that acting more human. And so have you ever thought about that? I can impose behavior on, on an animal. It's almost, it's, it's, it's infallible how I can do it. If you know what you're doing, for the most part, you can do it. Now, there may be some, I don't know. I mean, there's sometimes I look at my dog and I think, man, she's got a strong will. But what does that mean? It's not the same. Okay, so uh, what it really means is she's got tenacity. You know, which is a good thing if you want a hunting dog, for instance, to to bust through a briar bush to get a bird. You know, I mean, there's a there's a there's a hunt instinct that says I will kill myself to get this thing. But that's tenacity. That's not the same as will. I can reject going after the bird. My dog would not know how to do that, and it's almost impossible. And the only thing that would stop her is if there is a sensory response mechanism that's bigger and higher than the bird. And so we have exercises that we do in dog training to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of things. You know, you put it on a table and all this stuff and you do things. Not, I don't mean cruel things, but just you do things. Well, okay, so, so this is really good. We're, we'll go back to the doctrine of sin. Um, but so we're talking about anthropology. Um, what is the biblical anthropology? And certainly it's going to begin with this so notice the pattern of our discussion so far. It's going to start with what we are in our glorious conception and in our glorious being. So glorious that you'd be tempted, as C.S. Lewis said, to worship each other. And we will be tempted to worship each other in heaven. We will, just, we will literally be tempted to worship each other. We're that glorious. Little gods, almost. Which, is, of course, explains our temptation. But then we're going to talk about anthropology in the concept of, of our moral failure, our moral flaw. And, um, and so we'll get into that. So with that, would anybody like to pray for us? Would you, um, James? How about praying for us? Get it started here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of coming together in your name, coming together over your word, and having our minds um, broadened and, and our hearts open to receiving more of what it means to know you and walk with you. Bless us now, refresh us now, encourage us. Let us leave different than we came. Let your spirit operate through us. And uh, bless our teacher, 
and uh, empower us with a better understanding of how we can glorify you in this world. Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen. So we've already sort of begun a, what I call the modern predicament. And so as we move into the Westminster Confession and to the Bible, more importantly, um, we begin to, to just, just think about where we're coming from here. What's the atmosphere of anthropology today? And so these first couple of, of comments, again, they're, they're a little bit repetitive, so I don't want to spend much time on them. But there's some great little quotes. I love this. You, if you've read some of my material and listened to me talk, and somewhere I'm sure I've said nothing buttery. It just, it's such a demeaning way of saying what we're trying to say. Nothing buttery uh, kind of anthropology. But it's, it's getting at what we've already talked about. The, 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 in modernity, <coughs> with that Cartesian revolution we keep coming back to, and all that comes out of that with the Enlightenment, we are deeply reductionistic. And there's a lot of either-or-ism going on. Are we a brain or are we a mind? Do you remember that controversy? You know, are we, you know, today in psychology, right? We have a psychologist here, right? Do you, I mean, we're still calling it psychology, right? Or is it brain science? Okay, so talk to me about this this trend towards brain science, though. How would you would you distinguish the two? Which is a, would be a revealing answer in its own right. Um, I would not distinguish the two. All right. So in your field of study, you would, but think about that. Is there a psyche, soul, that we can differentiate from the mind? Now, I didn't say. Is it conceivable to have a psych without a brain, if you will, or, 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 or a brain? I meant to say brain, not mind. Well, no, that's the, that's the organ that somehow enables the psych to express itself, but we're going we're gonna, to, in a kind of mystical way, want to say that there is a living, humanity is a living spirit, there's a psych to it. To humanity that is somehow <coughs> distinct, and here's this really important concept: distinct, but never separate from the mind. Can you have a psychopath from a mind? I'm not aware of it. If you got rid of the mind and had a beaten heart, you still wouldn't have a psych. I don't think. But it, can we conceive conceptually of a mind of a psych that is somehow apart from mind? Well, yeah, that's the doctrine of. Of, of what happens at our death. Do you think my, my sight disappears when my body, my brain goes into the dust? I'm going to say no. So isn't it interesting that as a person like I was trained, not like to the degree you were, trained in psychology, <laughs> that there is almost no distinction between psyche and brainy. And yet our theology is going to tell us there is. Insofar as do we believe in the body and the spirit, a dual nature of humanity. What were you going to say back there, uh, Doug? Uh, no, I was just going to say that for psychiatrists who are boarded, their boards will often say psychiatry and neurology. Just, hmm. just to speak to your point, hmm. psychiatrists are typically trained in an atheistic worldview that it's all organic. It's all, um, there is no soul. It's all neurological. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Neurons firing. That's all we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last three years, I've worked in a research unit that focuses on different circuits of the brain, either functional or dysfunctional, as as a as a cause of different psychiatric and psychological yeah. manifestations. Yeah. 
So it's a very reductionist approach. There it is. Human behavior. So how would we now define morality in a brain science conception? Dysfunctional circuits. Dysfunctional circuits. I don't think you can talk about morality in a psychiatric Okay, can you talk about it? Because it's, it's not it's a concept. Not, it's not good or bad, it's just who you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You committed that you are, you're a sexual predator because of your childhood upbringing and the things that have influenced you. So we don't speak about it being good or bad. We may say it's not appropriate within the context. You're not safe to the community. Yes. You're hospitalized or incarcerated. But at least all the psychiatrists I work with don't say that person's doing evil or yes. that is, yeah. uh, that is right. morally reprehensible. Now, do you see how – I want you to see how unbelievable – this concept is e either it's going to make the Christian faith look just really stupid. I mean, it really. This, these are some pretty major paradigm conflicts going on here between Christianity and modern science, and that's exactly what I'm putting right here in front of you and acknowledging it. Coming out of Cartesian revolution, the idea that we that there is no psyche world, there is no soul. There is no spirit, the death of soul in modernity. So now we've reduced, it's reductionistic, to everything, to this synapse dysfunction or function going on in the brain, or whatever, or sensory, you know, stimulus response, which we call habits, coming out of childhood, nurture, out of these patterns that form you into reactions that you can't overcome. We're back to what we talked about, aren't we? This mechanistic person. This person that cannot override any of this. Uh, you see this very machine-minded uh, kind of a way. Uh, nothing buttery is characterized by the notion that by reducing any phenomenon to its components, you not only explain it, but you explain it away. You can debunk love or bravery or sin, for that matter, by finding the psychological or physiological mechanisms underlying the behavior in question. And we hear that all the time. You know, we hear it in the debates on sexuality. You know, I'm just cross-wired. Or I'm wired differently. That's, that's, that's just lingo for this. And I can't overcome that wire. You know? And we as Christians, with a worldview that sees ourselves not merely from the bottom up, as in the Cartesian revolution, but we see it from the top down. We see it as we are known by a being that's outside of space and time. We know ourselves as being as we are known by God. That's an amazing concept. I mean, have you heard of the looking glass self? Psychiatrist, would you tell us, psychologist, would you tell us that? You know what that is, right? The looking glass self? Yes. Isn't that a psychological term? Where did I get that? I thought I got Michael Jackson sings the song. <laughs> <laughs> well, the looking glass self is that we know ourselves as other people know oh, us. Wrong. We would call that objectification. Objectification, yes. Wow. Ooh, but that gets all into the bad stuff. I don't know. It does. Well, I mean, but can that be a good, can that be a concept that's neutral morally? I, when I hear objectification, I'm thinking of what we do to women when we sexualize her or something like that. Which is usually the context. It's yeah. seeing yourself as an object. Yeah. So, so think about that concept. If, if in the biblical worldview, according to Calvin, we read him, we know ourselves as God sees us. We are the, the looking glass self with God as our looking glass. And how would that change the way we are known?
and the way we see ourselves. How does God know us? He doesn't know us in pieces and atoms. He knows us the whole person. And you're going to get to that in, a, in just a second, in fact, because we're going to look at the word nefesh in Hebrew, which is the word for soul, and that's what it gets at. You'll see that. So with that in mind, I have some good quotes here, and you can look at it. But this, So I'm just going to zip through this. Um, let's see. Self-identity, a well-integrated pattern of input corresponding logical process and an appropriate output functioning. The feedback system is the core of the computer, and that's what we believe is who we are, how we act, why we act. Um, now, there's a postmodern reaction to the modernist, and it really is a return to what we call the, the sort of a Gnostic dualism. And this anthropology, and again, this is all very overgeneralized and simplistic, okay? You, you, you can appreciate that for now. But if you were to hit the postmodern identity, what would you come to? Well, here's a bit of a, of a description of it. It's this, it's, we start with this crisis about who are we. Our crisis over identity was profound. And we're going back to this Gnostic dualism where now we reject the materialistic view of our identity that we just talked about, brain versus mind. And now it goes pendulum swing to the, res to the other extreme now that we are anti-matter. We are anti-body. We're anti-brain, if you will. And that's the new spirituality movement. You see it in Kabbalah, Judaism. You see it in all kinds of, of, of Buddhist and, and Taoist sort of spiritualities where there's a kind of, if not overt, covert um, attempt to, to diminish the bodily materiality and to understand ourselves as spirit, a spark that we're trying to locate, and the way you locate is you peel away the materiality. You try to get beyond it, and that's meditation, where we, we lose the body, we lose the earth, we lose the materiality in looking for the spark of the divinity which is within us. Did you have How a, would you differentiate that from like the Greek philosopher's perspective, or are you just saying there are a bunch of practices now associated with the same? I'm not sure. I'm, say that question one more time. I'm um, sorry. How would you differentiate this postmodern yeah. leaning from Greek philosopher's perspective of body is a trap? Like the Neoplatonic idea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think it's related. I think there's a there's there's this similar. You know, and that was what and that's paganism too. I mean, that's all ancient paganism, which is modern Buddhism in some ways. In a, in, a, in, a, in a form, at least. I don't want to... Well, a lot of qualifications. But this concept, yeah, I think that's right. There's a, there's a bit of a, you know, a, a, an aversion. You, you can see it. I've worked it through here. If you look at the... And this is ancient Gnosticism. You know, it goes all the way back to the times of the Bible, you know, with all the Gnostic uh, material. And he, I'll just read it. You know, that, that this material world... Look at the second... Um, uh, paragraph. Many appear to have believed that the material world we live in is an awful at best and evil at worst. That it came about as part of a great cosmic catastrophe. And that the spiritual beings who inhabit it, human spirits, are entrapped or imprisoned here. Most of the people in prison of the material world of the body, however, do not realize the true state of things. They are like drunk persons who needs to become sober or like someone sound asleep who needs to be awakened. In fact, the human spirit does not come from this world. It comes from the world above, from the divine realm, which we now, okay, yeah, but 
but it is only when it realizes its true nature and origin that it can escape the world and return to the blessed existence of the eternal home. This is a quote from Bart Imran, who himself is a scholar of, of, of you know, this, this sort of the Gnostic idea. And we see an emergence, a renewal of that, which is why, why the Gnostic text has become so wildly pop, you know, sort of popular. You know, because it's, yeah. So you see what's going on. What, what did we just do, though? I want you to look at the big picture here. What am I illustrating? There's this pendulum swing. And both of them are characterized by reductionism. We're either spirit or we're body or brain or, or material. But what the scripture's going to do when we understand ourselves as being known, what is man in relation to God, that's the, that's the biblical view of anthropology or how we do it, our process. What is man or humanity in relation to God? John Calvin again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. And there we go from this sort of degrading self-flattery to self-worth in the image of God. Um, he says it this way, as long as we do not look beyond the earth being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. You know, and he goes on to talk about this. I won't read all of these. These are some good little things. And so the key thing I want to hit on, though, is this next one, number C. And, and this really gets at the core of, of the word nefesh, or soul, in Scripture. It's, it's from atoms, and I mean atoms in a, in a figurative sense. It's from this, these reductionistic parts of what humanity is, to the whole, understanding ourselves as a whole being. Um, so even in the Imago Dei, when I was a first a Christian, and there used to be all kinds of you know debate, you know what is being in the image of God, and and you have various traditions here. By the way, e interestingly enough, every one of these traditions that I'm referring to have a counterpart, and whether it's the psychological traditions, I mean Freud, you'll see him here. You'll see Marx here. You'll see us, all sorts of theories here, both that pertain to our psychology or that pertain to our vocational theories. And it's very interesting. You could, you could do a doctrine of vocation by each of these. But if through the history of time, um, here, let me just read the Burkhauer, uh, this G.C. Uh, Burkhauer quote. Would someone read that? Did somebody say it there? I'm tired of talking. We no no jokes. We may say that we never encounter in the Bible an independently existing, abstract, ontological, structural interest in man. In the Bible, man is indeed analyzed, but in a very special sort of analysis. This man is now, now in the impossibility of his being isolated and independent is the whole man. And so, his, if you look at the history of anthropology, you're going to have all these options. You're going to say humanness... Uh, is, is our dominion, it's our work. You think of Marx. Humanists in corporal form, you know, and there you have the materialist. Humanists and sexuality is male and female. You got Freud, you know. Humanists and rationality, on and on, you know, Leibniz. You, humanists and morality. Humanists and spiritual soul, humanists and community. And what we're going to say, all the above. How can we say that? It's the biblical unity of the soul in the image of God. In other words, as Stephen Evans says, all of these capacities are interrelated in the most complicated way, and that is, therefore, a mistake to identify the Imago Dei with any one of them. 
And here's that great verse that we need to look at, Genesis 2, 7. So the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a nefesh. That's that word that if you're reading your, your Bible's soul. Now, how many of you think nefesh, soul, is synonymous to spirit? Good, you didn't take the bite, the bullet. But a lot of people will associate. You probably knew not to answer that because you knew I wouldn't answer. You know, you just, you're getting wise to me. But um, it's used 754 times, and there's all, all sorts of instances uh, about it. And what you begin to find is that, that you know, I, I talk about this idea that what you find is the nefesh literally means the whole person, body and spirit. It's... It's, it's, it's the word used. So, for instance, and I'd give you some illustrations here. Uh, if you were to put, if, if, if you were to say, uh, like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That, oftentimes, you hear that. And, and our modernistic, we're so informed by this process of atomizing things, that we even read scripture like that. The point of that is, is what we'd call a kind of, of, of synonymous repetition. He's saying what? What's the point of that passage that I just read? Love the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. With your whole everything. Just everything. Absolutely. And he uses words that in the Greek would have said everything. We, it's not brain. It's not blood pop that they're referring to here or this spirit part it's every one of those words are the same word they're just different words used in that language to say your heart i.e. The, the life source of everything that you are your heart everything that you are your mind everything that you are your soul love the Lord with everything so beware when you hear these little Bible studies that try to atomize things like that you know, this is just all saying the same thing. Or there's other passages in the scripture that use nefesh. Um, like if you were to offer a sacrifice, and if the if the intent of, of God is that the it was very um, it, it was very important that the whole sacrifice got burnt, that that you that nothing was left, and so it would say, put the soul on the altar. Speaking of the whole animal, the full, total being. And so in this passage in Genesis, it's describing humanity as material, but a material that is then the Holy Spirit, and that's the language of breathed here, clearly referencing the Holy Spirit. This isn't starting, this isn't language telling me, and he started my, my lungs to work. That's not what's going on here. You know, the scripture, for instance, and in, in the scripture describes itself as being breathed, which means created by the Holy Spirit. And so the idea here is that humanity is, is formed, the whole person, both body and spirit, the nefesh. And that's really important. Because now in anthropology, we're gonna, our, we are going to try to understand ourselves never as atoms, but always as a holistic being. So that there's not going to be these dichotomies between body and spirit. When we, you know, bury someone, we're not going to be treating a body as if it's just dirt. 
because it's sacred as with its spirit that it will be reunited to one day. They're preserved for one another, you see. And that's, that's a sacred doctrine of, of, of both the New, Old and New Testament church. You know, church. If you were in, 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 um, in you know, have you, met, have you noticed how, how uh, in the Old Testament, when Abraham moved or when they began to pilgrimage, what would they do? Remember, the, who was it that, that asked that you would take my body with you? Who was that in the scripture? Was that Abraham or Joseph. who? Joseph, yes. I mean, what's going on with that? You know, the modern man says, if you're the modern evangelical, which I would say really the Neoplatonic kind of a person would say, ah, oh, that's, not, that's not Joseph anymore, that, that, that stuff in the ground. That's not Joseph. The real Joseph is up with the Lord. Wrong. That is Joseph. But it's Joseph temporarily separated from Joseph's spirit. And we certainly believe that the spirit that is now with the Lord is, is, has a psyche. Just as God, who is spirit, has psyche. Has, a, has, has all that stuff. <laughs> I'm using the word psyche. And so, uh, so, so any questions at this point? I'm going to stop here for two seconds. Before we go to Westminster and our consensus about the scripture. Anything you want to say? Well, we're going to move on. So the Westminster, a couple of observations, and I'm just going to be able to, you know how I do. This is where you can expect to kind of go, hey, notice this, notice this, notice this. Because we've got some big stuff to do in the, in the doctrine of sin. But if you read it, someone read Westminster 4.2 for us. So three ways does the confession understand the image of God here. Um, I'm not going to have you read it, Lisa. Um, but clearly there's a material aspect, there's a moral aspect, and then I, talk, I call it the vassal kingship. That's not the language, but it's have dominion. There's a dominion aspect. There's a rule, a vocation we'll call that. So there's a vocational aspect to the image of God. There's a moral aspect, the fact that we, we were born with freedom with a with a with the freedom to choose which by the way when i say moral i don't mean good or bad i mean moral capacity which presupposes free will so to say you are a moral being is to say that you have the capacity to choose right and wrong and then of course material uh, as i said and that assumes by the way the intellectual the the, the mental um I'm going to skip over a few things here. I really want to hit on this dominion element. I believe, really, that probably the most the thing I'd want to emphasize most when we talk about the image of God is I believe if you we've done this before, right? Uh, we've talked about this, but remember what the Bible is from last week when we talked about creation and the the debates about creation and how to read Genesis and all that stuff. 
Anybody want to remind us the proper method of interpreting Genesis? Covenantal. Thank you. It's, we've got to use the, the hermeneutic of covenant. And what is it within that covenantal framework? Remember there were seven parts to a, a treaty covenant? What was it? What is Genesis? You're good, man. There you go. It's the preamble. Genesis 1, the preamble, and then Genesis 2, the second creation starts the Ola Taladot formula. These are the generations of ten times, five of which are the elect, five of which are the rejected, if you will, the Cain line versus the Seth line. That all begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. These are the generations of. So the first account of, of Genesis is, is framing the name of of God. What is God named by virtue of, of Genesis 1? Does anybody remember? What, what is revealed about who God is in Genesis 1? You better get them things up here. Huh? What, what, is, what is God revealed? Remember the, there's the... I'm going to go with creator. I wasn't here. That's close, but no. <laughs> he does create all things, but that's not the point. I mean, it's it's the sub it's it's a supporting point. Let's put it that way. So remember, let me remind you. How's it straight? How is Genesis one structured? You've got three. He's the suzerain. Okay, there you go. Let's get it right, though. You've got yeah. What? The framework. There you go. There's a frame. There's a poetic frame. It's a poetic way of introducing God. We know what poetry is. It's bigger than the words, if you will. But but you've got these three kingdoms. Heaven, water, earth. You got these three kings, moon and stars, you know, birds of the air, except all this stuff, fish of the sea and humanity. So you got three kingdoms, three kings. And the reason you know that, by the way, is because there's this anthropomorphic, this anthropocentric language of rule. You know, moon is said to be ruling over the night. Rule? What do you mean, rule? He's like, it's 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 poetry. These great kings ruling over these great spheres. And then there's God who, but where's the, the, the symmetry just got broke. There's six, one, two, three sphere, four, five, six kings over the one, two, three spheres. And then seven king over all spheres, all kings. And who is this God? Well, in the context of Moses, and revealing a covenant, whose God do you want? Do you want a God that's a little sectarian God over here? The little sect God of Gilgamesh epic and all the dualisms that were going on there? No, we don't believe in a dualistic war. That's the, that was the ancient pagan understanding of creation. That creation came out of a dualistic cosmic battle between evil and good. And that's where Gnosticism is born. And so... You have this idea, but no, 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 not, not, I'm trying to tell you about a God who's king of kings and lord of lords, right? Now, what else do we learn about creation? We learned that it was what? What is creation? Good. Good. What else? Anybody remember? Come on, come on, come on. Let me feel like we did something last week that, that, I, that I did well. I don't think I did very well, though. Ah, you want a hint. You worship in it. Temple? Yeah, remember? Remember all the temple language? Do y'all remember that now? Is that coming back? We, we showed you how many ways that Eden 
is described as a temple. Remember the gate on the east? Remember the dome that, that described that sky is the same word to describe the temple uh, dome in the sanctuary? We talked about, you know, we went through all sorts of things. The Shekinah glory that comes down upon this Eden in Genesis 2, hovering, floating, you know, this sort of language hovering over Shekinah glory, same Shekinah glory that hovers over the temple, the same Shekinah glory that hovers over the temple of Jesus Christ when he's baptized, all of that. And I could go on and on and on and on and on. You've got language after language after language. You've got Isaiah language, Psalms language that relates Eden to temple. And this is, I it just models my brain that people have, this is so obvious if you're just reading it. Especially if you do what every church has been doing, which is read it in its Hebrew. And so now, if you've got a temple, who's humanity? Just one guess. Who's humanity? Congregation. Well, it's a congregation. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's a good answer. <laughs> What's the dominion? What's the vocational purpose of humanity? To worship in the temple, but let's let's go a little further. We 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 don't y'all believe in clergy, or you don't think there's no yes, the priest. Now you're saying Preston, come on, where do you see that in the Bible? Oh boy, good question, good question. So we've got this in our image language, right? Let us make man in our image, and then make clear this involves both man and woman because. Let him make, there's other passages there, but I'm going to skip over that. We've got to go quick. Um, I'm going to skip all over this. You see how I'm going to go back? I'll come back to the Dorothy Sayers quotes and this stuff about the meaning of work. This is huge. But I want you to go down to page, since we're here now, page four. When God placed man in the Garden of Eden, right there, observations, Eden is depicted not merely, as I've said, as a biosphere, but a theosphere. I like that. That's really cool. It's a theosphere place of the dwelling of God, as a God's heavenly dwelling place. As such, Eden was envisioned as a temple where man would meet with God, right? And now we begin to introduce this idea of a human priest. What does it mean that humanity is scribed after God's image or imago Dei? How might the above noted vocational language attached to it inform what we are looking for in the imago Dei? Now, I give you some, some observations. You know, this idea of the image of God reconsidered. Instead of looking at it, as I say here, as for some kind of an architecture, we, we often look at that image of God and say, oh, it's, it's he's got a rational soul, or he's got a living spirit, or he's got a morality. or he's, We went through some of those choices, right? But see, that's very modernistic of us, even now. What if we were to look at man as the whole person, his being and what he is in relationship to the covenantal revealing of God in Genesis 1 and 2. What if we were to look at it within that covenantal framework? Who is humanity? And here's what you get. Throughout the scripture, whether it's a judge like Gideon or Samson or prophets or kings, to be invested with the spirit, that idea of breathing into, the, into, the, into Adam, was to be anointed or commissioned to a redemptive historical office of prophet, priest, or king. This idea of being anointed always comes with the Holy Spirit setting this person apart for a sacred office for purpose in God's redemption. 
And again, I need. I wish I had scriptures there, but it's just everywhere. But I think right at the top of my head, Gideon, because I happen to remember that preaching it. The vestments themselves, though, is what I want to focus on. The vestments. Where do we get this Imago Day language? You know what I mean by the vestments? Every priest had a had a robe, if you will, a, a vestment. And themselves were given to priests, were carefully crafted to reflect the image of God. Idea, and then reflected in the temple symbolism. And especially the vestments of the priest that was emblematic of God's glory. So the outstanding instance of this symbolism in the Old Testament is found in the placing of the sacred vestments on the high priest of Israel. And look at what we know about that. The production of these investments, as accounted in Exodus 28 and 39, you can go read, was like putting on the image of God. It's described as putting on the image of God. For immediately following the directions for the construction of the tabernacle, blah, 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 are the prescriptions for Aaron's sacred garments and his investiture. Now, you think about what's going on here. You have this amazing description of the temple. Remember how detailed it was? And then what's the next thing? but the description of the vestment. Now why? When examined, these high priest vestments turn out to be a scaled down version of the tabernacle and especially the radiant glory cloud of the spirit of God that is given, God, given, God breathed into humanity. It's this idea of an ethic. And so here's what you had. You had these fine linens, white linens, if you will, but the effort, you know, was one thing, you know, but what I'm saying here it is a clothing that is made to resemble the temple inside and out. So it's like a, it's a mirror of the temple. And so I go through and explain what that would look like. Um, the more earthy side of the temple then is inside. So that would be the closest thing to the, to the priest's body. And then three layers, it consisted of three layers to the heavenly side that is represented in the temple by the Holy of Holies. And that would be on the outside of this vestment. Uh, the, the course, the point being clear that the man filling the office to point people to Christ is by his very mediator service in the temple to bring people to heaven. Now here's what it would have been made of. It would have started in the inside as a drab, earthy, on outside is put inside the effort. You know, in other words, inside the outside is this earthy brown linen. Then there would be a blue representing the heavenly skies. And then there's the holy throne of God on the next outside layer of the ephod, material of combination of crimson, red, blue, gold that shines with square breastplate. The Holy of Holies, of course. The pillar of fire, of course. On ephod, there are Urim and Thummim, the darks and the lights representing the fire and the cloud, the gold and silver, Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. And so what do you, this is, this is stuff that we just, you know, let's slow down again, right? And you go, wow. In his image, he made them. Man and female in the image of God. The image of God in a temple called Eden. The presence of God. Whose purpose is to image. It's to service, to protect, to guard. And when you look at the language, now we're going down to the language. The language that is then given to, as the commission, his vocational commission. Kabash which means to subdue or conquer, to bring all of the earth in submission to who? To God. He was to subdue the earth in its rule. Human labor is to be an exercise of man's dominion and a march of a royal conquest on behalf of God. The kibosh language then, bringing into subjection. And of course, that's what Adam failed at. He failed at bringing all things into, into submission 
to God. And then the next word is to guard. It's literally the word shamar. It's the, these are the exact two words that are used to describe the vocational commission of the priest in the temple. To guard it. To protect it from, from desecration. To hold the keys to it, remember. And so, really, what you've got here is this amazing, and then be fruitful and multiply. If you look at it, and again, it's amazing how often this language shows up all through redemptive history. All the, all the blessings are with this language of be fruitful and multiply. The idea here, we call it evangelism, the idea is that Eden was meant to inhabit the whole earth. It was, it was meant to expand Eden over the whole earth as the temple of God. Bring all the earth in subjection to God to guard this holy temple and its holy purpose, which is to reveal God. So now we begin to see a very different, this idea of the priesthood of all believers. It's the human vocation. It's what it means vocationally to be in the image of God. To, to live our life imaging God in his glory as related to the priestly service in the temple. What do you think of that? How does that change your view of yourself and your purpose in life? I think it's awesome. It is awesome. Thank you. How so? Well, just, it's amazing that, that the creator would, would want to have a relationship with us as, as frail as we are. Yeah. And, and, and now he's left us with this, this huge opportunity to, uh, to represent him mm-hmm. um, no matter what our vocation is. Yeah. It, you know, it, so you being the pastor... Is, is no greater than my being the nurse. Mm. Um, Everything we do is yeah. meant to be a priestly service to God, absolutely. And it's Good. Just, just exciting to me to, that God, you know, he, he sees it all. Yeah. And is the same. And, um, yeah. and <laughs> think about how that would. That's a, it in, really. I really can't think. I mean, that's a great, though, just thinking about a nurse since you brought. You know, to think of the idea that I'm here to bring this body in submission to God, to bring this person, this, this, whatever this filthy pollution called illness is, to restore it to the glory of God, and to guard this, this temple presence of God in Eden, insofar as I guard the image of, of humanity from desecration for the glory of God. It's just a beautiful concept of who we are, what we're to do. You know, whether we're, we're in science, whether we're in the arts, whether we're in the, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. I think another thing it does is it simplifies things in all aspects of life. So, I think a lot of times we're very much um, enticed by complicating things in life as we walk through life, whether it's family, vocational, relationship, finances, whatever, it just very much simplifies things um, in various aspects. Yeah, that's right. In fact, that's a good... <coughs> go up to page four again. Because this is really gets at this idea of vocation that you just described. Um, I have a really... Uh, you know... Well, this is a good quote. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It's a pretty good... Listen to Dorothy Sayers, which, by the way, is one of the best essays on work I've ever read, if you haven't read it. 
Um, it's found in her little book, Creed or Chaos. But um, someone read that quote there, we need. And, and listen to what she says and see if it doesn't, if this theology doesn't inform that. I don't know that she had uh, uh, the, the temple metaphor going in her head here, but just think about what she's saying. Someone read that for me. We need a thoroughgoing revelation in our whole attitude to work, not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God that it should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself, and that man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them, for the sake of doing well a thing that is worth doing. Unless we do change our whole way of thought about work, I do not think we shall ever escape from the appalling squirrel cage <laughs> in which we landed ourselves by acquiescing in a social system based upon envy and avarice. Wow, lots there. You think how polluted work gets when it's just for money. And how glorious it is if we see it as a priestly function. And how it's going to transform, you know. I mean, in, in, in that sort of way, you could look at it and say, well, this is going to make me work harder. No, not necessarily. It might transform my life to say that insofar as I'm working harder for avarice, or insofar as I'm neglecting a, an aspect of my vocational responsibility, say at home or at church or in, in the public square, there's three spheres, remember, then, then see, I'm not being very priestly. I'm not guarding the life that God gave me. I'm not subduing all of my life to the lordship of God. Kabash, the Shamar. And so it's a real interesting concept that it, it's going to put everything in perspective. And it's going to take out a lot of the selfish ambition that typically is the source of workaholism. I mean, it's not, it's not priestly motivation that makes us workaholics, or it's not priestly motivation that makes us lazy, lazy people either. That's sin. That's a pollution of work that makes us either lazy or workaholics. There's, there's stuff motivating that. Now, oftentimes, it's not just individual stuff motivating it. It's systemic and corporate, if you will, stuff motivating. It's the greed of that system that is now driving the whole work of my life that is driving this into the way that it is. So it's, it's very complex. And when we start talking about sin, it's, it's very interesting. And I want to go into the doctrine of sin now for about 15 minutes because we all know that something went terribly wrong. And this is where I want to pick up with this Meredith Klein. Go up a little higher there, number six. How does all this relate to the doctrine of sin? Well, I just love this quote by Meredith Klein. I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it for us. You, everybody there, though, if you, if you can't see it? Page six? Yeah. It's, uh, no, it's on, it's on, it's on page four. Oh, I'm sorry, four. I said number six is what I meant, yeah. Number six. So if you think about Babel, you know, the Tower of Babel, think about what's happening there. We're just trying to... These are all just asterisks. You know, these are here's these towers, right? Babel was an idolization of man. Inspired by the spirit of human autonomy and omnipotence, the Babel builders would soar, they thought, above their geophysical entrapment. By the resources of their scientific genius, they would master fusion and remove the sting of fission from their experience of fullness. I know, he's trying to get kind of, this is, this is a theologian trying to get poetic, I don't know. Babel was the anti-city, the diametrical opposite of the city of God. 
which is the creation and gift of God. It's altar, an altar of plain earth or unhewn stone because it must be holy and man's technological processing would defile it. Man, made by man, then, was Babel's trademark. Come, let us make a brick. Come, let us build. In building their pseudo-focused city, they would exploiting the common grace city, perverting the legitimate cultural product into an idol cultus. What was ordained as an interim measure merely to provide historical space for the program of the eternal city, they interpret as the actual eschatological telos or purpose. Turning the city of man into the temple of man, they projected a tower mountain that should open the way for them to the heights of the immortals. Gathered in the unity of this rival-focused city, they would preempt the eschatological gathering promised at the consummation of the redemptive city of God. What, what is sin there? It's, it's rejecting the, the, the temple of God, which is the gift of God. And no longer serving the temple, but creating our own temple is in essence what he's saying here. Yeah. I think you said something before that's very key. You talked about the lordship. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the ultimate. That's right. And it always other is. Things is great, other things are gravy, but it's, is he the lord of our lives? Is he the lord? And, 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 is, <laughs> he, there, and is, is he the provider? Are we providing for ourselves? Are we rejecting his provision? All of that. So let's talk about sin real briefly. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen here uh, over the next two weeks. I'm introducing sin tonight just to get us started because it's part of the anthropology but I want you to come prepared, and, and, and uh, Aaron, we're going to need to use it. We're going to go back to the same handout to start next week. Because now, within this context of, of the priestly function of humanity, what do we do? What is sin now? It's when we reject our priestly purpose of, of, of uh, serving creation temple to the glory of God. And we now begin our own temples. And it's another way of thinking of the doctrine of sin. But by the way, before I get there, one more little quote on, on the Imago Dei. Just to illustrate how significant this Imago Dei language is in the story of redemption. Do you remember how Hebrews describes the coming of Christ? He is the radiance of the glory of God. What is he talking about? Already, you know, if you've been reading the Old Testament, he's talking about the temple. Of course, that's one of the theses of, of Hebrews. He's the radiance, the Shekinah glory of the glory of God. He is the exact image or imprint of his nature. I mean, you could almost, if you're a Jew, see this ephod in your head. Literally, it's the description of an ephod that he's given to Christ right now. The exact imprint of the nature, if you think about that breastplate of the nature, and he upholds the universe, now he's back to his created creation temple presence, by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on God, on I. The same God who is the ultimate priest uh, that is that has done what humanity, the first Adam at least, did not do. Okay, so, so I want to go back uh, to sin then. Actually, I don't. I think I'm going to do this in the light of next week because I don't want to even start it because there's a lot of good stuff here and I don't want to take it. So, so let's just slow down. This is great. We have a little time to slow down. What, is, what do you think then about this so far? Let's talk about work. Let's talk about uh, what do you, what, what's going through your head. Let me move. I had a question earlier. Um, yeah. 
I thought you were connecting subdue um, with what James is. I mean, James mentioned nursing, and then you mm. were saying to restore a person's body. Were you connecting restore and subdue? And if so, yeah, there's yeah. a sense in which to subdue all things to the purpose and the glory of God, if you will. And so, so you can think of you can think of work as a recreation act. We're we're imaging the creative. Artist, you know, you can think of work as being an artisan, as God was an artisan. But you can also think of work as restoring earth, Eden, to earth. How can we bring Eden back, if you will? Now, of course, that's the that's the, the force of all utopias. It's it's the whole, you know, this all all of I mean, and there's been thousands, as you know, thousands. I mean, every humanity, I mean, this to me is one of the great um, oh you know, when, when you think of humanism, if you think about that, that very naive endeavor in Babel, how humanistic that was. How here is man thinking in a naive sense that we can, we can build for ourselves a utopia. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people, you know, I'll hear things like, you know, the problem in the world is we just need to go and what? We need a new technological discovery. This discovery is going to bring in a new age or new knowledge. If we just go talk to these people and reason with them, and we just they just don't know. We need to go tr- teach them, educate them. And if you were to go back, I remember some of y'all heard me say this before, but about 20, 15 years ago at the uh, New York uh, Library down you know, in New York City, they had this exhibit on the Western utopias. And there were just thousands of them, thousands of them. And it just was so, and, and, and then this article in the New York Times, it listed all of them, you know. I mean, can y'all think, I mean, of course, you know, you think of the Republic, Plato, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just thousands of them. All these, through every era, whether it's communism, whether it was Assyrianism, whether it was Rome, they all had a utopia vision, didn't they? And it's just amazing to me, the, uh, the naivete that, that, and every one of them become a Babel and are destroyed. And I have no doubt that America is a utopian vision either. And I have no doubt that if this world goes on, it's going to find itself just like Rome. I mean, we all know that. Any historian will tell you America is not going to last forever. And the final sign, by the way, of the destroy—I mean, it's one of the common patterns. If you wrote, who was that that wrote that great? Your father has him in his in his house. The uh, Got ten volume history of the of the world. Uh, what's that guy's name? Torrent. Toynbee. Who? Toynbee. No. Torrent. No. Oh, God, it's on the tip of my tongue. I bet y'all know it. But his thesis was that, that the demise of every civilization is the rise of the leisure class. It's it's this idea that the that there becomes a, a the nation becomes leisurely, soft, if you will. And, um, and you just see it. But what's interesting is every one of these utopias, these Babel experiments, you know, with this incredible confidence, what am I trying to say all this for? We, lost, we lose sight of what? It's, it's exactly what the, the, the snake tempted Adam and Eve with, which was to take things into our own hands. Not to preserve God's glory and God's means of grace in, in temple creation, but to, in effect, try ourselves to do the utopian thing. And they all fail. 
And so I think this, this, this presentation of the image of God has a deeply humbling effect upon us, is my point. And not just a exalt, an exalting aspect to it, but there's a deeply humbling aspect to it. Because priest, what, what, how, describe to me a priest. I mean, you know, what, think about what that means, that we would be, if you think of yourself now as a priest walking out this door today. What are some things that come to your mind that would make you do your work in a priestly fashion? That's where I want to end. I see a priest both as serving God and serving the people. Yeah, good. Mediator. Mediator, good. Mediating God's justice if you're a lawyer. Mediating God's creation if you're an artist or if you're a designer. Mediating God's for the common good or for the, of course, salvation. Exactly. What else? But there's a humility. There's a servant. There's a stewardship. As Hebrew says, you don't take the office upon yourself. You're appointed. Good. That's right. It's, 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 it's commissioned of us. And there's an obedience aspect. I mean, everything That's right. in the priesthood was very clearly laid out how it was to be done and yeah. when it was to be done and, and whatever. There's, it's, it's obedience. Yeah, good. It's really not about us. It's a deeply humbling thing. It's not about the priest at the very core of his being. It's not about him or her. It's about the glory of God. And God, why? Because only God can bring utopia. Only God has the power to do what, what we believe needs to be done. So you do it God's way, and you trust it to be God's way. There's just so much in this, this idea of the image of God that I think we need to rediscover. You know? Well, let's, uh, anything else? If not, we'll let you go. Uh, I, I'm so tempted because I was going to cover the, the, the doctrine of sin, but I think it's going to be really good to do it next week. Because it's going to set up for you. So go ahead and do next week's thing too. But set up. It's going to set up for you because what you're going to learn is okay. We got this idea of sin now, and what does that imply then about what needs to happen for our salvation? And that's the key for next week. If you want to get ahead and read everything, all right. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Josh, would you pray for us?